This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. This is Sam, and I'm joined today by Norma Graham from Holland and Knight, a US-centric law firm. Norma is the Senior Policy Advisor and Global Chair for Cybersecurity and, and the Privacy Team. Norma, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks. So um, perhaps you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about your career, what you've been up to, and what you're focusing on at the moment. Thank you. You know, what's fun for me is I've had a really interesting background between being in public service and the government, having worked at the U.S. Departments of Commerce and State, focusing on international trade issues, then at FEMA as a consultant, more focusing on physical preparedness, and then at the Department of Transportation, really looking at critical infrastructure issues and and risks. And now uh, I focus on cybersecurity and privacy issues really in critical infrastructure, and inherently underpinning a lot of these issues They really are both domestic and international with the goal of helping companies understand how to put together a global governance structure to manage both cyber and privacy risk and still do what they're supposed to be doing every day, still make money, still serving consumers. Uh, And that can be a challenge. Thanks. Uh, You talk about cybersecurity and and governance frameworks. You recently partook in the IBM War Games exercise. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did with it? So the goal of that exercise was to bring together disparate parts of the payment processing industry, along with some of the legacy banks and card carriers to talk about what a systemic or a global cybersecurity attack would mean, and really to watch what that interaction is between and amongst the companies about how they might work together to manage those issues. It did embed some role-playing for a lot of the people there. So while they were chief information security officers, we did ask them to role-play completely different, really, views of the world. Someone had to play legal, somebody had to play PR, and so it did put... I think the individuals out of their comfort level to understand and maybe be more aware of what their colleagues within the corporation would need to do if there was an attack, but to really drill down on how do you manage some of these issues, which honestly, every company, no matter what the sector is, either has managed or will be managing in the future. It's super useful. And having seen the video, it looked like, yeah, it looked like it looked like a lot of fun as well as being useful. You've seen a lot in your in your career so far, and you're based in D.C. at the moment, the U.S. heart of policy. Can you outline some of the, the key policy trends you've observed in financial services over the years? It's really been an interesting mix of what I'm going to call technological reform, changes in the industry. We talk about fintech and blockchain, but it's also been about managing cybersecurity risk. And we've seen from an audit perspective or really the regulatory perspective, an increase in requirements on companies as to what they're supposed to be doing to manage their risk. And it's not as if this sector doesn't understand those things, but increasingly as we see successful cybersecurity attacks where money and identities and other issues are being stolen, the regulators have decided to come down a lot harder on what we call the owners and operators in the system. And so that means the requirements are on the big banks or the card companies 
companies, and then they flow those down. And interestingly, around the world, I think in the U.S., we've been more focused on cybersecurity. Privacy is certainly inherent to what we care about. The EU has been much more focused on privacy as a human right. And so I would say that we've been maybe five, six years ahead on the cyber side from a policy perspective, maybe a few years behind on kind of how we look at privacy. But we're starting to see those catch up. And as we uh, and a lot of our companies are dealing with GDPR and other issues, we're seeing a global discussion on policy in the U.S. about privacy. Again, not quite as a human right, but the need to look at security to protect the privacy of the individual. And now we're having an interesting discussion about who owns the data. Right. Ultimately, it is the consumer's data. But again, in the U.S., we're shifting between cyber and privacy. And what does that mean? We're also trying to look at global harmonization on regulations for both of these issues. And these are very difficult. And even today, uh, I know we'll talk about the P20 in a few minutes. The goal is to try and figure out what does really cyber and privacy mean from a cross-border data perspective in really just managing what is a global risk. It's not as if the risk is in the U.S. or in the Washington, D.C. or in the U.K. It's a global issue. The U.S. is often touted as having quite a fragmented regulatory ecosystem. In the U.K., we've had so far quite exciting results with with open banking, which is you know our sort of version of PSD two. Um, do you think that open banking is feasible in the U.S. and and how do you think it's it'll, it something like that will end up rolling out? You know, I do think that as we we in the U.S. have watched the evolution of policy to get to open banking in the U.K., it's it's been a very instructive one here. I do think we'll get there eventually. I think we have existing regulatory hurdles where the U.S. would really need to come together and change and modify many aspects of a really complicated structure to do that. Now, people might argue within the banking system that we already have aspects of that. So it's really just maybe moving the boxes around and talking to the regulators. But inherent in that uh, underlying policy is really, it's still about the consumer, that it is their data, uh, that they should have the flexibility to do what they want with it when they want. And that sort of quick movement and flexibility between our banking institutions doesn't happen at that pace right now. So I think that there's more to do, but I think there's going to be a global outcry for that. And the UK has been a leader on that, but you're seeing that in other portions of the world, Latin and South America and others are saying this is the way that it needs to be, most especially uh, because there's a great portion of the population who don't believe that they need to go to a bank, that they believe that the system should be as flexible as they are. And when they move, so should everything else. So to the P20, what brings you here this week? It's obviously in its second year. Lots has happened. What do you think the power of the P20 is and, uh, and what are you looking to Get from it. So I'm going to start with the value of the P20, uh, because I think bringing together the top 20 payment processors in the world and really building on that very strong underlying US-UK relationship is incredibly important. Because when we talk in the U.S. about, we, we use the term critical infrastructure, and I talked today about national critical functions, the payment processors fit in almost every aspect of all of our lives, whether it's traditional banking, whether it's retail, or even if you think about your electric utility bill or other things, I don't think that people understand how important this industry really is. So the coalescence of the companies and the cross-border issues are incredibly important. And there are some aspects of the of this sector that are regulated and some that are not. So I do think the coming together 
coming up with a global structure that will manage privacy and data security and cybersecurity in a way that, again, allows business to operate and provide protections is important. There's an underlying close relationship between the U.S. and U.K. on cybersecurity issues. And that's really one of the reasons that I'm here today. So I've been working with the P20 for the last, I'd say, about two years, trying to help the different companies think about what does a global cybersecurity program mean for companies? How do you implement it? And then how do you manage the the uh, fragmented and lack of harmonization around the world in a real-life pragmatic way? And that's trying to really be the bridge between the chief security officer and the board and the chief risk officer and the people that are running the business. Because in my experience, it's still hard for people to understand what cybersecurity means. Mm -hmm. And that fear factor stops them from talking to each other, stops them from understanding the risk. And we need to move beyond that. So today, uh, I ran a cybersecurity panel with a lovely group of companies, both public and private. I did participate in the IBM Wargame experience. And I think really my role is to, again, help companies understand how to implement some of these programs in an easy to understand way. And that's really important. What do you think a, a real disaster looks like in this space? What, what does, yeah, the worst possible thing that could happen to a financial services company look like? So that's the best and the worst question that anyone could be asked. I'm going to go a little bit broader. I think the best that can happen to any company is that they have in place the structures and the systems that they need, that they have partnerships with the government where it's appropriate, uh, and they know how to manage and mitigate an attack to, to deal with recovery, because that's ultimately what it needs to be about. The worst case scenario for anyone in the sector is a systemic cybersecurity attack that takes down the banking and the payment system and brings global commerce to a complete halt. And I think that's what certainly the U.S. and the U.K. and other governments around the world are trying to think about and trying to understand what's the likelihood that that could happen, right? Is a low likelihood but high impact? And then in the event that it does happen, what do we do? And I think that's that's the worst of the worst. We talk about the Pearl Harbor of cybersecurity or the 9-11 of cybersecurity, but the full-on takedown of the full financial services system is a scary thought. That it is. And yeah, fingers crossed it doesn't happen. Although uh, I'm sure that the cybersecurity is going to be a burgeoning industry for some people, probably the insurers. Uh, we always end with the same question. And I always say that at the end, who have been some of your mentors and role models? Who are the people you've looked up to most in your career? Also a good question. Uh, so I won't out them by name, but I will say that I've had a number of amazing mentors. And and it's really about the fact that they have focused on, I think, understanding and seeing the potential, in my case, in me, but I think I try and help this with other people. And what they taught me is that there is no problem that's too big that can't be managed or solved. Sometimes it's hard, but the way to manage uh, dealing with problems is really to deconstruct them. And it doesn't matter if it's cybersecurity or if it's running an agency or other things. Um, the other thing is the importance of partnerships because no one can do one thing on their own and building a good team. I mean, if, if one is smart, you build a team that includes people who are smarter than you uh, and you, you create a united mission for what you want to accomplish together and you build relationships in that. And at the end of the day, whether it's cyber or other things, it's about people and knowing that you have people you can trust 
And uh, well, I might have been given the tough love early on in my career to figure all that out, asking a few questions in between. I think that that taught me some good lessons about how to manage, again, issues and risk and problems. Thanks. And you just jogged my memory. I, I was recently interviewing uh, Natalie Sini, who was the former financial ombudsman CEO in, in the UK and is the chairwoman of Innovate Finance. She's doing a report into uh, the future of cash. Do you think we will ever live in a cashless society? Absolutely. I mean, I think we are having some very interesting trends, even from a pure demographic perspective. If you think about the number of people who do and don't use cash now, I mean, we are moving mostly into a plastic or a virtual world for payments in general. And we're having conversations about cryptocurrency uh, and using other fintech solutions like blockchain. So I think it's absolutely on the horizon. And all I would say is I hope that we build security and privacy in at the front end. And as much as I love technology, there's no there's no way, I think, to get away from the value of having people to call when there's an issue and a problem. But I do think that that is the direction that we're going. I've seen some people wearing, uh, two people actually today, wearing pound coin cufflinks. So at least there's going to be uh, a good use for, for all that currency that's not going to be in circulation. Norma, thank you. It's It's been great getting to know you the last couple of days, and it's been a real privilege having you on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.